Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of The Stooshy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. We had a regular episode of The Stooshy already planned for this week, but as politics changes so quickly, on Thursday night we put out a special emergency episode following the resignation of Liz Truss. Courier editor David Clegg was joined by former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale and Courier political editor Derek Healy to discuss the Prime Minister's resignation. And you can listen to that now on our Stushy podcast feed. If you want more content on the current political climate in Scotland, our investigations editor Callum Ross recorded an interview with the director of the Fraser of Allender Institute, Mary Spowage, before Liz Truss's resignation. We would like you to take a listen to that interview, where they discuss how current political events are impacting on the cost of living crisis. Mary, it's it's obviously uh, hugely complicated, but um, you know, if you were to try and summarise what has happened to the UK economy uh, in the last few weeks, what what would you say? Yeah, it's been a, a very long three and a half to four weeks. Uh, it's felt like it's lasted a hundred years. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, we had the the UK government. Um, present first its its um, intervention on energy prices, um, which generally was bro- was broadly expected that that's the sort of thing they would do. But it was given that they introduced it for two whole years, was exposing the public finances and the taxpayer to a huge amount of risk in terms of what that was going to cost overall. And then, of course, we had the the so-called mini budget. The quasi quarting um, produced on the twenty third of of September, followed by a pretty negative market reaction to the unfunded tax cuts that were in it, um, and then obviously um, a series of U turns, um, mainly designed to to stabilise the markets, um, followed by the the largest one of those on Monday morning, um, when essentially pretty much every measure that had been set out in the a mini budget in terms of tax cuts was scrapped by Jeremy Hunt. So, I mean, all of this has um, opened up the the markets to quite a lot of turmoil, and we've seen government borrowing costs go up uh, as a result of this uh, uncertainty. Um, so, you know, really, the Chancellor's having to not only reverse the sorts of measures that were put in place by quasi quarting and the mini budget but also to go further than that to kind of restore the credibility um, of, of the overall UK fiscal position. Obviously, now we're waiting to see what he's going to say on the, on the 31st of October in his medium-term fiscal plan. But the noises that the government are making, it looks like that many of the promises that have been made by the Prime Minister, such as the triple lock on pensions, might well be up for grabs. So it's been a pretty extraordinary few weeks um, and it just shows us how important it is that markets have um, faith, <laughs> particularly when you rely on those bond markets for borrowing, that they have faith in your, your sort of fiscal credibility. And and one of the interesting things has been, I think, is the focus on the absence of that independent scrutiny by the Office for Budget Responsibility and how important... Uh, everyone now seems to think that they are, and you know, <laughs> I would all absolutely agree with that. Um, but in a funny way, this period of time has has un- enhanced their role almost, and the importance of their role in in the fiscal processes of the UK. I mean, you say you say it, it's been an extraordinary few weeks, and it has been. But I mean, you, when we think about it, we've had Brexit, we've had the pandemic, Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, now the fallout from the. The mini budget. I mean, as an economist, how would you sort of characterize this period we're living through and 
are these sort of repeated shocks to the economy? Are they the the new normal? I suppose, and and is this sort of comparable to any other era you've studied? Well, I hope it's not the new norm, to be honest. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, the, there's so many over, much overuse now of the words un- unprecedented and all of these sorts of words um, that I remember using at the start of the COVID pandemic, in particular when we saw, you know. The shutdown of the economy on a large scale, you know, falls we'd never seen our economic output because of that response to the public health emergency. Um, and, you know, are all of our hopes that the recovery would be, you know, as quick as possible after the vaccinations had got in place and all of these sorts of things. And then the subsequent shocks have um, hit an already not very resilient economy, I suppose, um, harder. And, and, you know, one could go back to the the Great Recession, the financial crisis, and the fact that, um, you know, in the recovery from that, um, you know, we didn't really see people's real incomes grow over that whole period of time, um, and productivity performance and and growth was pretty poor and sluggish. Um, And, you know, there's been lots of of, uh, theories posed for why that might be in terms of um, economic output overall. So it has been a very um, tumultuous time, and it's never been more difficult to forecast what will happen next, I think. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you to forecast <laughs> with my next question. A lot of you know families up and down the country will be wondering, you know, with all this uncertainty, when, when things are going to go back to normal, when we might get some kind of semblance of stability, I suppose. I mean, and whether, you know, how worried they should be really about this becoming you know, a, a long-term um, uh, recession or, or, or worse? I mean, I think it is likely that we're going to have a period of, of pretty difficult um, economic times as we go into the winter. And although even despite the air and energy price guarantee, um, the price per unit is still double what it was a year ago. Um, and people are really going to struggle. And add on top of that, hugely rising food prices, and, you know, even things like clothing and footwear, you know, everything is going up in price and making it more and more difficult, not just to, you know, we're seeing some people obviously switch away from non-essentials to essential spending. So they're going to tighten their belt much more on discretionary things like um, maybe going out and that sort of thing. But we're also seeing people cut worryingly on essential spending um, and things like heating and um, and food and things like that. So it's it's a pretty worrying time. Um, and, you know, I don't know the answer to when we might get back to normal. I, I hope that um, the recession is is maybe only a few few quarters long, um, that um, inflation starts to come under control to, in, in a year or so um, and stops affecting people so much and that the economy um, begins to recover. But given the pathway for energy prices in particular, it's really difficult to know um, whether that's going to be the case. Turning to one of the other kind of big stories in in politics, Scottish politics this week, uh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon, of course, contrasted the the kind of chaos we've seen at at Westminster um, with what she said was a a more kind of optimistic vision of of the future in terms of Scottish independence and, and, uh, you know, as she outlined her, uh, uh, the new government's new economic prospectus for independence on Monday. I mean, the economy was crucial in the run, in, in the run up to the last referendum. Um, as an economist, to to what extent does this paper answer the questions uh, you think voters need answered uh, in terms of the key issues such as 
currency and borders, etc. Well, I mean, it's really good to see the Scottish government start to set out what their kind of economic vision would be uh, for independence. And of course, in anything, you know, it covers a huge range of areas, um, as you see on on currency, on on public finances, um, on on trade and migration. Um, and lots of other issues around fiscal sustainability and these sorts of things. So covers huge amounts of issues. So in some ways, it's always easier to say what it kind of doesn't cover or the details it doesn't have in it. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a, a really good start to the, the conversation. A lot of the focus has, of course, been on their plans for currency um, and their um, proposal to use sterling um, for an undefined period of time until the conditions are right to move to a Scottish currency. Um also, their proposal that they would rejoin the EU and what that might mean for for trade or um, movement of people um, within the rest of the UK um, as well. Um, so some of the, the questions they, they don't answer in that. Um, so there are some assumptions that are made about um, things like uh, the timescale or the ease of joining the EU um, and, and, and this sort of thing. Um, and you know that there's not really addressed well, what if that doesn't happen or if it's not not as easy um, as the Scottish government would like because it's not necessarily within their gift. Um, some of the other things that aren't addressed as head on as they maybe should be, um, although perhaps this is coming in, in future papers, um, is around um, fiscal sustainability. So the paper talks a lot about the sorts of fiscal rules that the Scottish government would be looking to follow, you know, to ensure fiscal credibility. And we can see from the last few weeks why that's so important. Um, but they don't necessarily talk about how to deal with the fact that at the moment, um, you know, over the last uh, however many years or so, um, we generally um, spend more on public services than we raise in taxes. They point out that, you know, the deficit in the current year is, is is likely to be lower than the UK's, but that's really because of, you know, hugely bumper oil revenues, which to some extent is, is probably quite a temporary uh, phenomenon and certainly won't be there, um, you know, for many years into the future. So, um, you know, for me, that was one of the questions that wasn't really addressed by the paper is how you get from where you're likely to be at the starting point of independence to um, a more fiscally sustainable position to meet those fiscal rules that they detail um, in the paper. I mean, is that something that's hard to ca calculate or, or are they, you know, deliberately not including that because it might not be politically um, good for them? Well, I mean, you know, if the, the point of independence is obviously to make quite different choices, you know, about maybe about how you would raise tax or how you would spend money or how you would incentivize growth in your economy, then, you know, over the long term, in terms of, you know, uh, say, you know, 15, 20 years after independence, you know, what we know right now about what's spent and what's raised might not be that that relevant. But what it does tell you is that's where we are today. Um, and so uh, it gives you an idea of where the starting point might be. Um, so, I mean, I do think that those figures, you know, give you an idea of that starting point and therefore those who are advocating alternative fiscal arrangements do need to set out wh how you would get from where we are now um, to wh where they would like to be, um, you know, however many years uh, after independence. The paper does say that it's kind of too uncertain to know what the fiscal position at the starting point would be. Um, I think there are uncertainties right now. Um, and obviously, um, 
even if there were an independence referendum next year, we don't necessarily know when Scotland, you know, would would actually be, be become independent. Um, but I think those uncertainties in the world economy right now make it even more important to address the issue um, of this kind of structural deficit that we have in terms of um, what we spend on services versus what we raise in revenues. You know, we can't just pretend that that isn't an issue and, and not try and address it. You mentioned, I think, that the paper and also Nicola Sturgeon, when she was questioned, wasn't really prepared to go into any kind of detail in terms of how long the government thinks it, it would take to meet the key tests outlined in the paper in terms of uh, what would be required before a Scottish currency could be launched. But, I mean, that's important, isn't it? I mean, because as long as an independent Scotland is using a currency it doesn't control, it, uh, it's kind of vulnerable, isn't it? And perhaps perhaps it could affect its ability to rejoin the EU as well. I mean, you've seen the tests that have been set out. I mean, how, how long do you think uh, it might take to, to, to get to that sort of threshold? Well, if, if Scotland voted to leave the UK, there aren't really any good precedents for it in terms of, you know, other countries that have been formed in, in recent years or even in the last hundred years. Um, so it's really difficult to know. Um, and I, I'm sure it would be dependent on lots of things um, in terms of general economic conditions when those tests would be met, met including the one that it would be economically, you know, the best thing for Scotland to do to, to move to its own currency. Mm-hmm. So I think it is it is very uncertain, um, and obviously you, you mentioned how it may interact with Scotland joining the EU, you know, and and many have, have sort of referenced the tests that the EU might put in place in terms of um, ha- having your own currency and ha- having exchange rate stability with the euro before joining. Um, but you know, I guess these things would be up for negotiation with the EU as well. There, there, isn't, there isn't a precedent for, you know, the UK's left the EU after being a founding member of it, um, then a part of the UK leaves the UK and re- wants to rejoin the EU. There's, there's really no precedent for it. So um, as with anything, or many of the things that are discussed in the paper, including things like the division of assets um, and the um, division of responsibilities for debt payments, these would be matters for negotiation with both the EU and the UK, um, but many of them are, you know, probably will not be in the in the Scottish government's gift, and and I'm sure they'll have to be give and take. And we've seen from the Brexit negotiations that just because one side of the negotiation wants something to be so doesn't necessarily mean that it, that's what's going to happen in the outcome. Great stuff, Manny. That's brilliant.